Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and some excursions into culture that take in some well-upholstered Alaskan bears, turn a prize-winning artist Jeremy Deller on why Taylor Swift might change the course of history, a Wexfordized version of a comic classic by Puccini at the Wexford Festival Opera, and Peter Broderick on why the musics of Arthur Russell haunt him in more ways than one. But we begin with those fat bears who've come to the attention of composer Jennifer Walsh. Autumn is here, apparently, though it doesn't really seem like that. Sure, the Halloween merchandise appeared in the shops back in August and the Christmas merchandise popped up a few weeks ago, so there is the sense that, as far as capitalism is concerned, anyway, we are definitely coming into autumn. Out on the street, though, it's a little more confusing. Last weekend, temperatures were in the upper 20s. People strolled through London in shorts and T-shirts, spent balmy evenings at outside tables sipping Aperol spritzes, which is about as far from a pumpkin spice latte as you can get. In the midst of this seasonal confusion and full of dread at what it portends, I found some small comfort in the fact that for Alaskan bears, it is business very much as usual and they are preparing for hibernation right on schedule. How do I know this? Because I am a fan of what is called Fat Bear Week. Fat Bear Week is an event staged by rangers at Katmai National Park and Preserve in Alaska. The premise is simple. Over the summer, the rangers track the bears in the park watching as they feast on fish and nuts and berries in order to build up weight for their winter hibernation. The rangers take before and after photos of the bears and during Fat Bear Week, the public are invited to vote for the fattest bear. The photos are accompanied by short biographies describing how, for example, after years of enigmatic behaviour, 32 Chunk finally used his size to his advantage this summer, such that his low-hanging belly and ample hindquarters bear the fruit of his success. Or how when 151 Walker fishes at Brooks Falls, he prefers to fish in the far pool, on the lip and in the riffles. The ranger's affection and care for the bears shines through in every sentence. Looking at the before and after photos of the bears is strangely moving. Every weight gain seems a modest but meaningful success story in the face of what we know the bears are up against. And while it's unsettling to have a sense of the season established virtually, it's nevertheless reassuring. I'll never see these bears in real life, but thanks to the rangers, I can learn about them. I can feel some relief and draw some hope from the fact that their cycles continue as normal, for now at least. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things. And if you'd like to catch up with all her previous and future Chronicus for Culture File, subscribe to the Culture File podcast. And if you like the program while you're there, say Apple Podcasts as you're there, why not leave us a review?
What brings people together and what happens when they're there are the central concerns of the art of Jeremy Della. The Turner Prize-winning artist's work often takes in otherwise ignored social groupings and their voices and their memorabilia, from ravers on the 90s British scene to unrepentant smokers parading through Manchester to the most obsessive fans of the band Depeche Mode to wrestlers and protesting mine workers. In films, television documentaries, posters and parades and other unexpected forms, Della explores faces of Britain that never really expect attention and finds in them underground political affinities everywhere. One of his most celebrated works is The History of the World, a flowchart demonstrating, among other things, the kinship between brass bands and acid house music. Della has created a retrospective of his free-roaming imagination in a book called Art is Magic, the release of which is celebrated in Dublin on the weekend with a special event in the complex ahead of which the artist spoke to Culturefile about ephemeral art, permanent politics and Taylor Swift. Often you, the public now are the documenters of your work because of how photography is, has changed. Um, that the public are the people that take pictures of things and, and record things and you work with the public uh, often in terms of capturing things that happen. On the other hand, I'm not one to collect things. So I'm quite happy for things to exist and then not exist and have a few photographs of it. Because I think for a lot of art, a lot of conceptual art, still exists in people's minds. It doesn't exist in the world, as it were, but it exists in people's minds because they've heard about the idea or they saw it or someone told them about it. And I like art that is in your head and you can never forget because it's there and it'll never leave your head. But then a lot of folk production or vernacular production is ephemeral. You see it in the streets. It's something, it's something, it's, you know, it might be something someone has made in the streets. And that you see and you document. And it's, but it's often things that can't be taken into a gallery because either they're too big or they wouldn't make sense in a gallery or it would be impossible to put something like that in a gallery or they disappear. And I'm interested in work like that as well. And maybe there is that connection to what I do and what, what you might call wider artistic productions. A lot of people would have encountered you in the days of acid brass. And so maybe tell us a little bit about what you feel about that project now. With that work, which was a brass band playing acid house music, it is about change. It's a, it's a work about change. It's a, it's a sense it's a work about industrial culture and digital culture coming together to make something. And it was a, an attempt to tell a story through music, story of Britain and how the country was changing and this process but also it was about the community spirit of brass bands and of trade unions but also the same of the, of the rave movement and then the subsequent criminalization of both those movements but for me it was about the connections between these two forms of music making rather than what they had not in common. It was really about what they had in common. You drew the chart very famously of the history of the world that connected these things. Would you draw it any differently now? I, I would not draw that chart any differently. I think the chart of the history of the world, which just sort of occurred to me in my head when I when those words were put together, I said brass. For me, that chart was absolutely essential to the work because it, it was a justification for it. And um, subsequently, that chart really was the, the script I had for the film I made everybody in the place, which will be shown in, um, in Dublin this weekend, which is really about this idea about music, popular music and popular culture being part of history, being part of historical moments 
the fact that you can't separate often popular culture and music from the history that's happening at the time, if you want to call it. But that's a rather clumsy way of putting it, but the, the historical events are entwined with culture and music especially. Often music has been a way of people protesting, has been a way of people to express their their desires and hopes about themselves, but also about society. And maybe you don't realise at the time, and only 10 years later or 20 or 30 years later do you realise that actually something you thought was just about people having fun was actually a part of a much bigger moment in history. Where are those sort of uh, impulses expressed now? You know, that music has become maybe more atomized, and the idea of it sort of determining a subculture, you know, is, is, is what seems far-fetched almost. Yeah, I get asked this a lot, and I'm, I'm not really the right person to ask. Really. And it's 57-year-old man, where is, it all hap- where is it happening? I'd love to know where it's happening. I just know that it is happening somewhere. And the fact that I don't know about it probably means it is really happening somewhere. So uh, I'm sure there's a lot of great things going on musically. In fact, I know there are. I couldn't give you names, though, if that's the next question. <laughs> but I know, I have confidence that people are making great music. But the the centrality of music in kind of in social organisation seems to be uh, diminished. Maybe, yeah. But maybe that's just us thinking that. Again, maybe that it isn't. With some young people, music is still the most important thing. Well, I was looking at, you know, who is defining themselves with music, and of course it's Taylor Swift fans, and I was thinking, like, would Jeremy Della be making a programme or a, a documentary about people who are great fans of Taylor Swift? I think not, for some reason. Well, no, but I mean, I, you know, there's not many bands I would make documentaries about fans about, and I, you know, I've done one, and I've worked with another set of fans, as it were, a community of fans, you know, 90s with Manic Street Preachers. But I think you could make a really interesting documentary about Taylor Swift fans. I don't think it, it, it would be that difficult, to be honest. There's enough of them, and you just have to sort of find the right ones. But there's, some, there's probably some incredible stories around that. What, what I'm saying you might make it is not that it's a ridiculous idea, but that you have quite a positive notion of fan culture that's of, often deprecated in one way or another. Yeah, well, I do. I used to go to gigs for the fans to look at the people at the gigs rather than the artists sometimes. I went to see Beyonce in the summer. And for me, the, the audience reaction and the, you know, and the audience itself is much more interesting than what was going on on stage, I have to say. For me, I'm, I'm, I was probably in the minority, but I, 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 I was really into that, how the audience were and how he looked and dressed. I didn't have it in myself to go with grace. I don't I think you I think Taylor Swift could be Taylor Swift could be very interesting next year. A lot of these stars, especially these young women, like Billie Eilish and uh, Lana Del Rey and Taylor Swift, they have a huge amount of cultural power. And next year in America there's gonna be an election. And if they could they could swing an election by saying things and doing performances and getting involved in voting uh, rights and so on. So don't, I think, you know, next year could be a very interesting time for these young, mainly women artists who seem to have a political standpoint and uh, have legions of fans who are so loyal to them and follow them. And and they might use that power for, in, for political purposes uh, with a small P or a big P even. So, yeah, I think we could, it could be a very interesting moment next year.
Jeremy Della there, and as he said, his film All the People in the Place is showing tonight, Saturday, at the Complex in Dublin, if you're not listening to the podcast. And there'll also be a public interview with Jeremy and music from Frog on Earth and many more. Tickets are on sale from Eventbrite, unless you're listening to the podcast. And next, to Wexford for the opera and the coming together of two of Wexford Festival Opera's artistic director, Rosetta Kuki's cunning plans. Puccini's wills and relatives comedy Gianni Schicchi is on this year's programme in an English version set not in the original Florence, but in Wexford, complete with plenty of local references. The production also features plenty of Wexford faces, community volunteers from the town, playing alongside the future opera stars who are part of Wexford Opera Factory. Culture File joined the crowds being ushered through the green store in Wexford for a promenading rehearsal. My name is Rosetta Cucchi. I am the artistic director of the Wexford Festival Opera. We are in the old granary uh, in Wexford, uh, beside the Talbot. The Talbot owned this place, and they very generously gave us uh, the... Um, the possibility to work here. This is a wonderful space because there are few um, few levels uh, where we can develop the story of Janis Kiki, and we did this. So today they they had a, a very good uh, rehearsal show with the people. The public make the difference because the public walk together with the singers, so they move from one room to the other, from one level to the other. So it's a different space, it's a different way to interpret opera but at the same time it's a new way and for us it's been very challenging but very exciting I am Lorraine Dowling and I play the part of um, a wife who is Nice and not nice. And a kind of a grumpy old woman at times. <laughs> Bossy. I would always go to the dress rehearsals and um, St. Iberius for the singers. Mostly I keep this time of the year available for whatever I want to go to and I volunteer as well. I feel I am so lucky to be involved with this and I have learned so much. I'm so honoured because to work with Rosetta, to work with Stefania and Ricardo and to learn so much but also to have the pleasure and so much fun and to be involved with all the beautiful young people. It's really, it's been a pleasure all round. Now, nerves beforehand, but overall it's been a pleasure. My name is Raymond Maloney. Uh, I uh, play the part of uh, the village idiot with some anger issues, though related to the Donatis. And then I also play the postman with a big chip on his shoulder about that family. I was volunteer last year and, and I heard that this was available. Uh, I've never done anything like being part of an opera in any sense and I decided 
give it a go. It's a, an experience and it hasn't let me down. The experience can be terror and joy, but it can also be learning new things that you knew nothing about. Uh, meeting the singers of the future that are coming out of Ireland, right? We had Rosetta there drilling us all, bringing us all together uh, with our team, and it went very smoothly. Myself and my team, we started the idea of uh, having workshop along the year. So we started in November. Every month we met this community people that was voluntary came to have this experience. And we worked with them. And you cannot imagine the development of the, those people from November to today. In one year, they changed completely their own way to act they learn how to act they learn how to speak on stage so it's a great satisfaction and a great proud for me to make this new step in the idea of matching community people and singers My name is Federica Raia. I am a sopra soprano uh, from Rome, Italy, and I sing the role of Lauretta. I sang it many times because it's, it's an aria very famous that all soprano sing. And, uh, but I sang it in, in Italian, which is my language because I am from Italy. And so it was uh, something very new to sing it in, in English. It's a different feeling, but the words are really... I like also the, the, the words of the aria in English are a little bit different from the one in, in Italian, but they fit very well. Uh, I like very much singing in English, also if my accent maybe is not really the most perfect one. Uh, it, it has a, a different taste, I think. But uh, Puccini is a composer from the uh, it's 20th century, so it's... English, it, it can be. It's, it's not so strange with the music of Puccini, the, the language. <laughs> the singers is another big proud for me. They are the singers from the factory. The, the factory is uh, our new academy for Irish resident and Irish singers. Uh, this is the second group of, uh, of the factory singers. We started when I was appointed artistic director in 2020, and uh, to see them singing and acting so well, I really think that is worth to have a factory. To, it's a duty and it's a pleasure for a festival like our festival, to have these people that will grow up with us and then will have the wings to fly.
Rosetta Kuki there and other members of the cast of Gianni Schicchi at Wexford Festival Opera. Sadly, that's returns only at this stage, but WexfordOpera.com has tickets for all the remaining productions. A kind of haunting next on the Culture File Weekly, Peter Broderick is an Irish-based composer and musician who's found himself almost uncannily connected with the music of the late American composer Arthur Russell, who died from AIDS in 1992, leaving behind teeming mounds of unreleased music. This month, Broderick, along with the French composer Sylvain Chauveau and his Ensemble Zero, have released their latest collaboration, recording and expanding on an abandoned music project of Russell's called the Tower of Meaning. Peter Broderick came to Culture File Towers to talk about Russell, his music and that inexplicable connection. Just to take your mind. The way that my career has intertwined with the work of Arthur Russell is something that still baffles yeah, me. Give it to the sky. So it's been a long, interesting journey of uh, working with someone else's work. It kind of came to me. I, it's not something I set out to do, but it all sort of fell into my lap. So I'm a rider today In your AC car I stare out the window As the green fields pass by I say I'm comfortable, sky waiting for my eye, song hanging in the There is this story about him, um, some people dispute it, but the, the story is that, you know, he was very prolific, but he wasn't very well appreciated while he was alive. But um, some, some of the people that worked with him and were close to him say... Actually, he was quite cherished while he was alive. He might not have had a lot of commercial success, but he was well-respected in the musician community. Arthur seems to have been a, a bit troublesome. A bit, like, I would imagine if he was your friend, you'd be frustrated with him. Or if, or if you're trying to work with him especially, he might be very frustrating. I think for music business people, people who run record labels and maybe gave him some money to work on some material... They were caught in this endless loop of Arthur saying, Oh, I think I've got something done. Oh, no, it's not done now. Oh, wait, I need to rework it again. Orange, orange, all in a round In our culture, the way I was raised, there's a lot of focus on the end result. And sometimes we forget to enjoy the process we, we put ourselves through hell just to uh, achieve some you know idea in our minds while forgetting to enjoy the process and um, you know the, the the older you get the more you realize well you know this all this time you're spending working on things that's really important if is just as important as the result if not more important so I've tried to uh, Arthur's been an inspiration for me to try and focus more on the process itself and and to enjoy that I remember when I first saw his name, and that was in a uh, 
it was in the first album review for my first one of like my first band that released a proper album. And uh, one of our first album reviews um, likened the music to it was Arthur Russell was one of the comparisons it drew. I'd never heard of him before. That was the first time I saw his name. I remember um, just thinking, I wonder who that is. Uh, but I didn't go and look him up because, you know, if, if, if you're an artist and you make work and someone says, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so, I don't know, most people wouldn't be compelled to go and listen to that because you want to think, no, I sound like me, not like so-and-so. Those comparisons kept coming to me. Uh, when I started playing li- my first live shows, several times it happened that someone would come to me after the show and say, wow, I, that really reminded me of Arthur Russell. And still, after, you know, five, six, half a dozen times of this happening, I, I had no interest in going to try and figure out who this guy was until one morning, this was around 2009, so, you know, well after Arthur Russell had passed away and some of his posthumous music had started to be released. But I was at a friend's house having breakfast in 2009 and she put on a CD and when we were having breakfast and she said, I said, uh, wow, what, what is this music you're listening to? It was really, I was having a hard time focusing on our conversation because the music was so intriguing. And she said it was Arthur Russell. For those who might not be aware of Arthur's story, where he grew up, you know, he he was born in the state of Iowa, you know, rural area, cornfields, and he didn't fit in there. He went to San Francisco, uh, you know, as soon as he got out of the family home, pretty young, I think maybe even 17 or something. And he lived in a Buddhist commune there, but he already started to experiment with a variety of styles. He was playing the cello, um, doing kind of like, uh, you know, Eastern-inspired music while also writing folk songs on the guitar. So when he then moved to New York, I guess that was the late 70s or early 80s, when he moved, he was probably most interested in sort of avant-garde composition. Um, but I don't I don't know that to be sure. I know he was very interested in pop music, but he, he approached pop music from this sort of arty perspective, like David Byrne from The Talking Heads or something, you know, and they even worked together. Uh, at some stage. It's a, a, a relationship that didn't seem to go very far. I don't know exactly what happened, but but yeah, I think, you know, Arthur, he also was curious about what was happening around him. And in New York, in the late 70s and 80s, disco was the thing. This is how we walk on the moon. I think he just got curious and, and wanted to, hey, can I... Uh, here's this music. Everybody seems to love it. What can I do with this? Maybe I can... And he probably wanted to play with it and mess with it a little bit, you know, and he did. The disco music that he made is truly bizarre. P. 
Peter Broderick there on the many musics of composer Arthur Russell. And we'll have more from that conversation on Peter's work restoring a lost treasure from Arthur Russell's archive on Monday's Culture File. Peter Broderick will be playing the October Nights Weekend Festival at Ballinar on the 28th of October. Octobernights.ie for all the information. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. Next week, we'll have a special edition of the programme on In Sea, about what happened when a group of Irish musicians, including Zoe Conway and Donald Lunny, got American composer Terry Riley's blessing to let loose on his most celebrated composition. That's the Culture File Debate, In Sea Irish, Saturday, 28th of October, 6.30pm. And directly afterwards at 7pm, you can hear the whole of In Sea Irish. Irish broadcast for the first time here on RTE Lyric FM.